First Peter 3, 1 to 7. I want to thank uh, our brother Jared Guillaume uh, for filling the pulpit last week, for giving a faithful exposition of God's word. I missed you all as we were away. Uh, we're continuing in our study of First Peter today. Uh, so we'll read these verses. When I'm done reading, I'll say something like, uh, this is God's word. If you agree that this is God's gift to us, would you join me to say, thanks be to God. First Peter 3, 1 to 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, moms in the room, I know what you're thinking, that this is the exact passage of scripture that you wanted to hear on Mother's Day. Well, you're welcome for that. I assure you, I wasn't intentionally planning to preach this passage on Mother's Day. This is just how our progression of 1 Peter came about. I think this can remind us why we preach through books of the Bible. One reason is that it keeps us from avoiding portions of the Bible that we might initially find unappealing. We will just have to deal with it. Uh, We take God at his word when he says that his word is entirely breathed out by him. All of the Bible breathed out by him, including the passage in front of us today. And so I think also a passage like 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7 reminds us of another reason why we preach through books of the Bible, uh, passage by passage, because doing that helps you read the Bible better. Right, week by week, we could just sort of parachute into different parts of the Bible, noticing just the parts that we find interesting, or we could just start with a topic and then cherry pick a couple of verses to try to support our preconceived conclusions. But if our main task is to know how the main point of a passage still applies to us today, then I think we're going to do that best if we see how a passage fits within the book it comes in. We'll do that best if we're walking through a book of the Bible. And that's what we're doing today from 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. All this is to say that when you take this passage in context, when you remember the situation of those who received this letter, when you slow down and look at this passage and don't make snap judgments, I'm persuaded that you'll see the goodness of God and the goodness of his word. Friend, that's the posture I invite you to have this morning. That's the posture I invite you to have anytime you open the Bible. That this is given to you for your good. Would you be open to seeing that? In fact, would you ask God for his help for you to see that? Would you work to see that this is for my good? Well, here's the main idea of 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7 that I think we should get across today. That your vertical relationship with God should shape your horizontal relationships with people, especially your relationship with your spouse. 
Your vertical relationship with God should shape all of your horizontal relationships with people, especially your relationship with your spouse. So as we'll see in this passage today, this shaping displays itself in our priorities, in our perspectives, in the patterns that we have. So just a little roadmap for our time this morning. We're going to start off widening our scope, looking briefly at uh, what the Bible has to say about the what and the why of marriage. And then we're going to look at the instructions given to wives in this passage and then the instructions given to husbands. And then I'm going to try to answer the question a lot of you will be thinking throughout our our time is what does this have to do with me, especially if you're not a wife or you're not a husband. So let's start off the what and the why of marriage. Broaden our scope a little bit. So around the time of his impeachment in 1998, President Bill Clinton was sat for an interview. He was read a plain statement someone else made about his behavior, and then he was asked, President Clinton, is that statement correct? And he paused, and you can see the wheels turning in his head. And eventually he gives his answer. He says, well, it depends on what the meaning of the word is, is. Now, like it or not, President Clinton was right about something that you have to define your terms So Peter here in this section really dives into instructions about wives and husbands without doing much foundational work. But the Bible has a lot to say about the what and the why of marriage. And while Peter doesn't explain it in detail, you can see how he builds on the Bible's foundation. Now, I'm helped here by Chad and Emily Van Dixhorn's book, Gospel Shaped Marriage. Looks like this. Uh, We've given this away. You can actually find, I think, a copy in our resource center as well. Uh, But the authors summarize what the Bible teaches about marriage, and they give the following definitions. So if you're a note taker, maybe pay careful attention to this. Uh, Definition of marriage, the what of marriage. Marriage is a gift from God that is a lifelong, exclusive, and publicly recognized bond between a man and a woman. I'll repeat it one more time. Marriage is a gift from God that is a lifelong, exclusive and publicly recognized bond between a man and a woman. Now, you, can, you might be able to see how you could tease out different parts of that definition, but right away, you can see how the institution of marriage is different from the institution of slavery that Peter talked about in the previous section. You see marriage, um, though often twisted, though often abused, marriage is an institution established by God. Slavery, on the other hand, is an institution established by man. Now that's the what of marriage. What about the why of marriage? Well, again, I'm helped by the Van Dixhorns. They say this about the why of marriage, summarizing the teaching of the Bible. They say marriage is for mutual support. It's for companionship. It's for the reproduction of the human race. It's for the promotion of sexual purity. And for Christians, we can also add that marriage is for church growth. It's for offering a context for children to be nurtured in the Christian faith. And it's for reflecting the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, that's a lot of information for you. That's a basic summary of the what and the why of marriage. There's so much more we can say, but this isn't a sermon or a lecture just on marriage. But I thought to understand this passage, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7, you should understand at least a little bit of the foundation of what the Bible says 
about the what and the why of marriage. A foundation I think we could see Peter explicitly building on or at least implicitly building on. So let's look at what Peter has to say. Peter first gives instructions to to wives. And we can keep the what and the why pattern going. I think Peter goes through two cycles of what and why over the course of these instructions. So what are wives supposed to do and why is it so important? Well, the first what and why cycle comes in verses one and two. And the second what and why cycle comes in verses three through six. So cycle number one, starting in verse one, what are wives called to do? Just read the beginning of that verse, verse one, uh, verse one. Likewise, wives be subject to your husbands. Now, likewise is another way to say in addition to Peter is pointing us backwards. He is flagging that these instructions I'm about to give come within an already established stream of thought. So we remember what comes before this passage. That the Christians Peter's writing to exists in a world filled with earthly authorities. And now these earthly authorities don't exist outside God's will or God's control, but these earthly authorities often act contrary to God's will and God's commands. So we think about what Peter has said so far about these earthly authorities. It could probably resonate with your own experience as well. You too live in a world filled with bad rulers. You live in a world filled with bad bosses. You even live in a world filled with bad spouses. That's what Peter has been talking about. And the question becomes, what do you do when you find yourself in that type of situation with a bad ruler or a bad boss or a bad spouse, especially if you can't get out of that situation? What do you do? Well, he says you look to Jesus, the founder and the finisher of your faith. That's the heart of this section, what he's been talking about. If you find yourself in that type of situation, like Jesus, you are not to retaliate. Instead, you are to entrust yourself to God. Jesus himself suffered under unjust authority, both as our example and as our substitute. You could look back at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23. It says, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So if you look back at 1 Peter 3, verse 1, you see right away that there are Christian women who are in a bit of a predicament. That they are living in a marriage where they are a Christian, but their husband isn't. Now, keeping in mind the context of the New Testament, we look at a place like 1 Corinthians 7, The Apostle Paul is clear that if you are a Christian and are single, your only eligible candidate for marriage is someone of the opposite sex who is also a Christian. But here's a little different of a situation. What if you become a Christian after you get married and your spouse still isn't a Christian? What do you do then? Well, that's what's going on here. Notice the situation, 1 Peter 3, verse 1. He says, be subject to your wives, be subject to your husbands, even if some do not obey the word. Now, Peter uses this title of the word uh, synonymously with the gospel. If you look back at chapter one, verse 25, he says, the word is the good news that was preached to you. That is the perfect life, the substitutionary death, the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Like he's also said before, not to believe the word is, or believe the gospel is more than just an optional thing. It's a disobedient thing. He says there are husbands who disobey the word. That's his way of saying they don't believe it. It's, it's your way of finding out what Peter's saying is that when you are, hear the gospel and you don't believe it, this isn't something like it's an optional add-on at the spiritual buffet that if you just don't feel like taking it, it's no big deal. No, not believing the gospel is actually a matter of disobedience. So think about this. this think about the situation going on here. For these husbands not to obey or believe the gospel, well, then that must mean that they have already heard the gospel. They know what it is. I I assume, I think you can make a good argument that they've likely heard the gospel from their own wives. They knew that their wives believed the gospel, yet they themselves refused to believe it. So what are these Christian wives to do? They've spoken the gospel to their husbands, but their husbands don't believe it. Well, Peter says they are to be subject to their husbands. Now, notice really closely, they're not to be subject to men in general. They're to be subject to their husbands in particular. We'll see in a little bit that Peter upholds the equality of men and women, calling them both heirs of eternal life or heirs of grace. At the same time, God has established different roles for men and women, both in the church and in marriage. I think what a lot of people have a hard time with is that different roles doesn't mean people have different value. That the role of leadership for men isn't rooted in just cultural custom, it's actually rooted in creation. It's spelled out more in a place like Ephesians chapter 5 or 2 Timothy chapter 2. Now, what does that being subject entail? What does it mean? Well, again, we should clarify that we should say that Peter's not giving a comprehensive approach to how you relate to your husband. We should clarify that this does not entail submitting to any type of physical or verbal or sexual abuse. Nowhere does the Bible permit any of those actions. We should also understand the context that Peter's writing in. That for a lot of these Christian women, they lived in a context where it would be impossible for them to leave their marriage. Peter wants to help them. Now, there's a lot we could say about what it means to be subject, but to keep our scope within this passage, for Peter, being subject entails a certain type of conduct. You look at verse 2, conduct that is respectful and pure. One commentator observes something interesting, that the word translated as respectful actually comes from the same word that's often translated as fear, as one of Peter's favorite words. He tells us earlier, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So in 1 Peter and the Bible, generally, this type of fear is always directed toward God. And that might help us here with what these, how these wives are supposed to conduct themselves. They are to conduct themselves with a fear of God. That all they do, they should do with the desire to please God above all else. So if a wife finds herself in a situation where she believes the gospel, but her husband doesn't believe it, she should concentrate on displaying conduct that is pleasing to God's sight. Her vertical relationship with God should shape her horizontal relationship to her husband. Now, why is that so important? That's the what of it. Why is that so important that she concentrate on her conduct that's pleasing to God? Well, again, look back at verses one and two. 
It's so important because her unbelieving husband might see her conduct and be won over for Christ. I can't help but see how merciful God is. He wants to win over even people who have disobeyed him. That is abundantly merciful. So again, remember the situation. These husbands have likely heard the gospel already. They've heard about who Jesus is and what he has done. And so this becomes not just a word for wives, but a word for anyone who lives with or who has family members who don't believe the gospel. I wonder if that's your situation. I'm sure that could describe anyone here. I actually wonder if anyone here is the only Christian in their home. I wonder how you handle that. I'm sure it's very hard. I bet you have a heart for people who are closest to you, that they would know Christ and turn from sin and be saved and forgiven. Well, if that's you, what's your course of action? If you've even spoken the gospel to your family members who don't believe it, yet they just refuse to believe it. Well, if uh, what Peter says here is, is all you do is constantly nag people to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. If that's all you do, well, then those people around you might start to tune you out or worse, they might even start to think that you're irritating. But what if the beautiful gospel you've told them could be displayed to them in the beautiful life you live before them? I think that's what Peter has in mind. It's the same dynamic he brought up in chapter two, that don't be so busy saying that you're a Christian that you forget to act like you're a Christian. How you live is the greatest argument for what you say. Now, let me be clear. When Peter tells Christian wives this, his instruction to concentrate on their conduct, this is not him saying that they should compromise what they believe. Notice, I don't know what version you have, but I'm sure it doesn't say anything like this, that Peter doesn't say, you know, if your husband wants you to stop following Jesus, you should be subject to him and listen. It doesn't say, you know, if your husband wants you to stop gathering with the saints at church, you should listen to him. You should be subject to him. No, no, no. There are limits on this instruction, aren't there? This is why this instruction would be so radical in Peter's day, because women were expected to follow their husbands in everything especially in the gods that their husbands worshipped. So you might imagine then how Christian women could be charged with sabotaging their marriages. Right? That, that there is an area of their lives where they are more loyal to Christ than they are to their husbands. Now Peter's saying that might be true, but you can disprove the charge that you are sabotaging your marriage. That yes, you are loyal to Christ first, but when you concentrate on your conduct you can show that Jesus actually makes you a better spouse. So maybe we could put Peter's words in our own words. Maybe he could say something like this. Sisters, what if your unbelieving husband sees how Jesus has transformed you, transformed you to be gracious and kind and considerate and a selfless wife? By doing this, you could show your husband that Jesus isn't out to destroy your marriage. He's out to redeem your marriage. You could show him that Jesus isn't just real. You could show him that Jesus is good. What are Christian wives called to do? And why is it so important? There is another what and why cycle spanning from verse three to verse six. There we see Christian wives are called to prioritize character over appearance. To prioritize character over appearance. 
Uh, so let me paint a picture for you. I'm praying that this doesn't happen to you. I'm, I'm also not naive enough to know that it, it, it does happen at times. Let's say that you recognize your spouse hasn't been acting like him or herself. <laughs> let's just say this is your husband. Let, let's say you recognize that your husband's become more argumentative. That maybe in the past your husband has professed to be a Christian, but you've noticed that he stopped reading his Bible. You've noticed that he's not as engaged at church. You've noticed that he's become increasingly distant. You've even gotten the sense or maybe evidence that he's plunged into some type of impurity. You've noticed all of this. How might you be tempted to react? I go back to the Van Dixhorns. They say, it's an ageless practice to deal with the inward pain of rejection by attempting to make ourselves outwardly attractive. Peter mentions three usual devices we use, hair, jewelry, and clothing. And today we've invented a few more. But the problem is that we chronically address the outside of the person rather than the inside. So ladies here, I don't know half of the pressures that you face, half of the expectations you face of the ideals of appearance and beauty. I can't imagine how often you are barraged with that. How many commercials have you seen with the latest skin cream that's supposed to take away all of your wrinkles forever? How many times you've been at Giant Eagle checking out, looking at the magazine? There's Marie Osmond again, who's lost 55 pounds using Nutrisystem in three months. How many selfies you've scrolled through on Instagram of women who you know who receive a lot more attention than you do? I don't know the half of the expectations and the pressures that you face. But what I do know from this passage is that your call to prioritize your character over your appearance. Peter describes his character as gentle and quiet. And again, remember the situation Peter addresses, a situation where the wife believes in Jesus, but her husband doesn't. By the power of the Spirit, this wife can show her husband that Jesus' love for her has made her lovely. That even though he doesn't believe the same as her, that hasn't cooled off her heart toward him, is actually warmed her heart toward him. That even though she sees the truth that he doesn't see, that hasn't made her proud and arrogant. It's made her humble and gentle. I can't help but notice how gentle and quiet sounds a lot like how Jesus describes his own heart in Matthew 11, as gentle and lowly. Sisters, why is it so important that you prioritize your character over your appearance? Well, again, I don't know half the expectations you feel, but what I do know is that this is important because your marriage must be built on more than just physical attraction. Your marriage must be built on more than just physical attraction. Yes, if marriage is a bond and in part that bond is physical, well, you should be attracted to one another, but beauty fades. So the question, not just for you, but for all of us, what will be revealed about you when your appearance fades? God's design is that your inner beauty would become more and more obvious as your outer beauty fades. That's his design. God's design is that the bond of marriage would strengthen and sweeten over time, not just through physical intimacy, but through relational intimacy. 
Your marriage must be built on more than just physical attraction. That's why this is so important to prioritize character over appearance. And think again of the situation Peter addresses where the wife believes the gospel, but the husband doesn't. So if your spouse isn't a believer, he or she needs to be convinced of more than just your beauty. He or she needs to be convinced of Christ's beauty. And it's not your physical appearance that will convince him or her of that. It's your inner character that will convince him or her of that. Your marriage must be built on more than just physical attraction. Wives, this isn't just for you to know. Husbands, this is for you to know as well. Do you reinforce this? Do you make this easy to believe that your marriage is built on more than just physical attraction? Think about how you pursue closeness with your wife. Will you only pursue physical closeness to her? Or will you also prioritize good conversation, time together alone? Will you prioritize having fun together, giving her words of encouragement, doing practical deeds of service? Even when you do pursue physical closeness to her, how will you do that? Will you treat your wife as just an object for your consumption? Or will you treat her as your bride to be loved? Ladies, I don't know half the expectations or the pressures that you face, but I do know that you should uh, prioritize your character over your appearance. Why is that so important? Well, it's not just that your marriage should be built on more than your physical attraction, but also your identity. Your identity should be built on more than just your physical appearance. There's always going to be somebody prettier, right? (laughs) Beauty will fade. Look at how Peter describes the beauty of inner character at the end of verse four. He says, which in God's sight is very precious. That word precious actually means something of great cost, something of great cost. So that tells you that the character you can now display was purchased at the infinite cost of God's very own son. That tells you that your worth is determined not by the cost of your physical appearance, that your worth is determined by the cost of your redemption. Why is it so important that you prioritize your character over your appearance? I think Peter gives another reason. It's so important because of the example of those who have gone before you. Look at verse five. He says, this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. Now, what this tells you is that the women of old didn't conclude, well, I guess my husband is just physically and intellectually and morally superior to me. I guess I better submit to him. No, that is not the motivation. Heck no. It says they hoped in God. That's why they understood what God had said about how he designed marriage. And although it might not seem natural to them, although they might not understand it at first, they hope in God. They trust his good character. They trust God is not out to spoil my joy. God is out to promote my joy and protect my joy. They trust that what God designed for my marriage is better than what I would design for myself. That's what compels them to trust and follow God's word and even in their marriage. My friend, that hope and trust 
even for something that you might not understand. That's not reserved just for wives. That, that we, all of us will need that if we follow Christ. All of us at some point will have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. All of us will have to hope in God. Peter turns to the example of Sarah. And ironically, the Bible actually tells us that Sarah remained physically attractive even to her old age. And yet, as one author writes, uh, Abraham might be the father of the faith, but Abraham wasn't much of a husband. Abraham didn't appreciate his wife Sarah as he should have. Twice he gave her up to another man rather than risking danger to himself. Yet still, Sarah chose to follow the maximal form of respect in her culture, even calling Abraham Lord or Master. Now, let me be clear. Peter's point is not that this is what you should now call your husband. So husband, please don't apply this in this way. Peter's point is that in spite of Sarah's famous beauty, that the most beautiful feature the Lord saw in her was not her physical appearance. It was her character. Now, Peter concludes his instructions to wives by telling them that they are Sarah's children. They are Sarah's children if they do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. I read theologian Don Carson, what he says about this verse. He makes a compelling case that a better way to translate this, the end of this verse is to say, you are her children, not if, but so do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. In other words, their identity as belonging to God, like Sarah, is already established. It's fixed. It's done. That's through what Jesus has done in their place. If they belong to God, they can do good and they don't need to fear. Their identity, their hope remains alive. It remains unshaken. So there you have it. A long time for instructions to wives. But I wonder maybe if this afternoon on this Mother's Day afternoon or maybe later this week on Wednesday evening at community groups, how are you thinking through these instructions? What questions do you still have? What was helpful that we went over? What was maybe not so helpful or not as clear? Good, good topics for discussion. But we'll head next into Peter's instructions for husbands. Now, it might be really obvious, but these instructions are a lot shorter than the ones he has for wives. I know this is the type of high-level observations that you expect on Sunday mornings. Um, I think this is likely because Peter focuses on groups within the church that would most likely be suffering some kind of injustice, as the church was as a whole broadly. Yet still, he doesn't let husbands off the hook. Husbands also need their vertical relationship with God to shape their horizontal relationship to their wife. I've heard Pastor John Stott put it like this. The husband might be the leader in the home, but God's design is not that the wife would follow an ogre, but that the wife would follow a lover. So once again, we can draw out a what and a why in 1 Peter 3, 7. What does Peter call husbands to do? And why is it so important? Husbands, You're called to live with your wife in an understanding way. Literally, this phrase says, you're called to live with your wife according to knowledge. So the question becomes, knowledge of what? Well, some argue that often the word knowledge is used in connection to our relationship with God. So 
Your life with your wife needs to be informed by your knowledge of God. So husbands, the most important investment you can make in your marriage is that you have an ever-deepening, an ever-sweetening knowledge of God. Not just that you know facts about God, but that you know God himself. I've heard it put like this. It's one thing to know and memorize Psalm 23. It's another thing to know the shepherd himself. Husbands, do you know the shepherd? Do you long to hear his voice? Do you feed on his words as your spiritual nourishment? Do you feel starving if you go through a day and you haven't read the Bible? Do you store his word in your heart? Are you a hearer and a doer of the word? The most important investment you can make in your marriage is a deep and sweet knowledge of God. You are lived with your wives according to knowledge. Knowledge of what? Now, some argue that this is knowledge of your wife. Now, I think both can be true. And you can see how this might work, right? If you're going to love your wife, if you're going to serve your wife well, well, it will help you that if you know your wife, if you know what she likes, if you know what she doesn't like, if you know how she communicates, if you know her personality, if you know her past, if you know her family, husbands, Enroll in the course of advanced studies of my wife and stay in the course for your entire life. Resolve to know her better and better. It reminds me of another nugget of wisdom from Chad and Emily Van Dixhorn. Uh, I've shared this story before. Uh, Chad tells the story about how he wanted to give his wife, Emily, a special surprise for her birthday. So it's her birthday morning. Chad knows that Emily loves breakfast, so he decides I'm gonna make her breakfast in bed. So the eggs are perfectly over easy. The rye toast it has just the right amount of crisp to it. And uh, the cherry on top is fresh squeezed orange juice to go along with her breakfast in bed. So he enters the bedroom, championship entrance with the tray. Uh, and then he asks his wife a fatal question. He asks her, honey, do you want uh, ice in your orange juice? And then she asks him, Chad, how long have we been married? And you know, a question like that is something good's probably not coming after that. Um, he says, well, 10 years. And she asks him, in the 10 years that we've been married, have I ever wanted ice in my orange juice? He says, well, I guess not. Well, perhaps Emily could have been a little gracious after receiving breakfast in bed. But... Uh, Ladies, we so often need your grace because men are just so often dumb. (laughs) The point is, men, resolve to know your wife well. What are husbands called to do? To live with their wives in an understanding way as well as to show honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Again, we have some explaining to do here. Uh, honor, that word, interestingly enough, it's the same way Peter calls us to relate to the emperor or to the king back in chapter 2, verse 17. Now, obviously, our relationship to the king isn't going to be the same as our relationship to our spouse. However, I, I think we can get some help here with that comparison. So, husbands, if you read 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6, those instructions to wives, and your conclusion is, well, my wife is my servant. That's how I'm going to treat her. Your conclusion would be dead wrong. You are told to honor her 
And so I think that comparison to royalty might help a little bit. Peter wants you to conclude, I should treat my wife like a princess or like a queen. When Peter says as the weaker vessel, he's not saying as one who has lesser dignity, as one who has lesser value, as one who has lesser worth. No, he'll say right after this that Christ's following wives are just as much heirs of heaven as Christ's following husbands. He's saying what it looks like on the surface, that normally husbands are physically stronger than their wives. So husbands, let me paint a picture for you. I know this might not happen to you, but let's just say it applies to the person next to you, okay? That you're in a disagreement for, with your wife and that you're at an impasse and there's clear tension in the room. You've grown frustrated and you are just doggedly sure that your way is right and better and that is what you want to do. And so that the way you seize control in that interaction is by asserting your strength is by yelling louder. Or God forbid, it's by hitting harder. That is the opposite of honoring your wife. Friend, if you are using fear or intimidation in your marriage, repent. Confess it. Ask forgiveness for it. Please get help and accountability for it. And apply the heart of Christ to this. One who is slow to anger, who selflessly lays down not just his preference, but his life. And one who is merciful. Why are husbands called to live with their wives in an understanding way? Why are they called to show them honor? Well, I think Peter gives two reasons. First, because they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Now think about what Peter isn't saying. Peter doesn't go full Hallmark Channel. Peter doesn't say, honor your wife because she's your soulmate. He doesn't say, honor your wife because she completes you. He doesn't say, honor your wife because she's the woman of your dreams. Now those things might be true. But Peter says, honor her because what's true of you is true of her. She's worthy of honor ultimately, not because of who she is and what she's done, but because of who Christ is and what Christ has done for her. That in grace, God Almighty gave his only son for her life. She is a child of God. She's forgiven of her sins. She's kept and protected by her heavenly father. She's an heir of heaven, not because she earned it, but because God gave it. Her vertical relationship with God should shape your horizontal treatment of her. And I think that makes sense of Peter's warning that he's about to say. Why should you live with your wife in an understanding way? Why should you show her honor? Well, the second reason is that so your prayers may not be hindered. If she really is an heir of grace, if through Christ she really does belong to God, then if you mess with your wife, you're messing with someone who's been purchased by and belongs to God. If you mess with something that belongs to God, God's not going to be okay with that. One missionary reflects on this. He talks about how sometimes if we have hit a roadblock with our walk with Christ, let's say sometimes we're just in a long-term funk 
with our mood or we feel dry in our passion for God. When, and if we would ever tell a trusted friend about this, that person might first ask about our like, devotional life. They might ask, well, have you been reading the Bible? Are you praying? Maybe they'll ask, are you growing and engaging at church? Those are all vital questions to ask. But I think Peter's instruction should tip us off to ask something else. Your friend should also ask you if you're feeling dry, passionless. How are you treating your wife? Because poorly treating your wife, Peter says, can hinder your prayers. Brothers, is there someone in your life who can ask you this? Who, who you've given permission to ask you this? How are you treating your wife? Would you amend that today if, if there's no one in your life like that? Consider this quote from Dwight Moody. He says, if a man doesn't treat his wife right, I don't want to hear him talk about Christianity. Hard to disagree with that. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, just for the last couple of minutes, I want to answer a simple question. What about the rest of us? Talked a lot about husbands and wives. What if you're not a husband or a wife? What do you do with this? Well, I think we've touched on it some throughout our time this morning. Displaying the gospel in your conduct and not just in your words is something for all of us to do. Prioritizing your character over your appearance is something for all of us to do. Living well with others according to knowledge of God and knowledge of people is something for all of us to do. But I'd argue, even if you're not a husband or even if you're not a wife, there's still something for you here, even in the, the specific instructions given to husbands and wives. Because think about this. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter writes these instructions to husbands and wives within a letter that would be read to an entire church. So the entire church, even the single people there, would get to hear these instructions. Now, why would it be so important for those people to hear it? Why would it be so important for a single person to know instructions given to husbands and wives? Well, you can imagine some reasons. One reason might be to perhaps to hold accountable. But if you see a clear and persistent disobedience to what husbands and wives are called to do, you hold accountable. But I, I, I bet more often than not, it's to help them. Married couples, like everyone else, like all other Christians, married couples aren't meant to follow Christ in isolation. They're meant to follow him alongside other believers, believers who are young and old, believers who are single and married. So single brother or Christian, let me paint a picture for you. Let's say that through your faithful sharing of the gospel, God brings a friend of yours to faith in Christ, that your friend is now a new Christian and your friend is married. Now, you could be humble. You could say, I don't know entirely what it's like to be married. But for as helpful as experience can be, experience isn't what equips us for every good work. God's word is what equips us for every good work. So what I'm arguing is that armed with the knowledge of the Bible, even a single Christian can disciple a married Christian as to how they are to follow Christ as a husband or as a wife. Does that make sense? Yes? Friends, I, I just think it's a dangerous temptation to think that just because someone hasn't had the exact experience that you have had, that that person can't speak God's word into your life. No one has had the exact experience that you've had. Only Jesus can relate to you perfectly. 
What about the rest of us? I wonder if kids, you've made it this far. Thank you for holding on. Kids, how should you react to this passage? Well, it's my prayer that in your home, you would see your parents display a marriage that follows what God says in his word. But I know that that won't always be the case. So my prayer is that when you read the Bible about what God says about marriage, I want you to see, I want you to trust that what God says is good. One day you'll grow up and a lot of you will want to get married. And my prayer is that you'll settle for nothing less than a Christ-centered marriage. Finally, what about the rest of us? What, what if you're not a Christian? I don't want to take for granted that there might be people here who are not a Christian. Thank you for being here, but I'll expand it further. What if, what if you've messed up as a husband or a wife and your marriage is on the ropes? What if you've been hurt as a husband or a wife and you are broken? What if you grew up in a home where the marriage was toxic and harmful? Well, God's word about marriage reminds us all that we are all both sinners and sufferers, and Jesus loves them both. So if that describes you, I urge you to walk away from this passage, honing in on two words from it. You can probably spot them. Hone in on the words of hope and the word grace. Friend, if you've been hurt by marriage, there is hope that there is goodness beyond yourself. There is one who mends what is broken by being broken himself for you on the cross. Friend, there is also grace. Every single one of us has not just been wronged, we have done wrong. We have hurt others. We have gone our own way instead of God's way. But God gives kindness we don't deserve. Jesus took what you deserve on the cross so that you can have what he deserves eternal life with him. Would you trust and follow him today? And when you do that, you'll find that the hope and grace you've received will begin to shape how you treat others, especially your husband or your wife. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Help us to trust your goodness and wisdom in what you have said. Make us hearers and doers Help us to cling to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.